Welcome to Composers On Air, podcast presented by the Lithuanian Music Information Center. I'm your host, True Rozaski. We'll be hearing conversations with living Lithuanian composers who will be giving us deeper insights into their music. The life and music of Naviskas is intertwined with cross-cultural experience, hard science, and vocal expression. Some say his aesthetics remind one of French Impressionism, evoking a serene melancholy with transparent textures and subtle dynamics. Some even say that the music is slightly intoxicating. I had the pleasure of speaking with him in a beautiful home in San Francisco where we shared ideas and explored some of the deeper meaning behind his music. So today we have Albertas Navitskas here, and uh, I wanted to welcome you. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What we're trying to do is find a way to engage listeners of contemporary classical music and learn a little bit about the individuals that are behind the creative process and have a just a way into the music in a way into just a real accessible entry. And one of the first things I wanted to say is as I was researching your history and trying to learn a little bit about you was you're such an international character and you've lived in Paris and you've studied in Lithuania you're from Lithuania and now you're in the United States and you're also very much involved in science. I know that you have studied biochemistry, so you're you know, coming up academically as a scientist, but uh, you also studied composition and music with Balakauskas and have a real important place in your life and your heart for music. So one of the first questions I had in mind to ask was about this notion of balancing your life for interests and how does music fit into the, the larger landscape of this totality of Albertus and the scientist? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think it, the, the fitting varies between, you know, during, uh, during my life. Uh, at some point when I was, you know, in, in, in school and I was studying, it was just a major part and it was uh, everywhere at every at every place and then you know I, I took different directions I, I, I studied music a lot and then also did science and then at some point when I you know I wanted to go to grad school I really think I, I love science and science loves me back hope and so I initially I thought I would go to grad school to study music maybe um, music and social sciences music and philosophy that was my you know, primary idea. And then it didn't really work out the way I wanted. And so I was always working along in a lab. And at some point I was like, well, I am already doing science. Well, not, turns out it was not in music, but in biology. And so then I, I went to grad school in biology. And so it kind of flipped at that point when job-wise biology you know, became my, my main occupation. And then I think it was a, a sweet point where music could take this, you know, it, it was not a job anymore. It was this really like privileged relationship to, you know, self-expression. Like nowadays, I'm, I'm really, I think I, I consider myself, you know, like very fortunate 
by the fact that I, I can really take on projects that I'm, that I'm so much interested in, uh, work with people that I truly want to work with. And so, yeah, it's been uh, an interesting place recently, music in my life. I, I wish I could do more. I can, I think I can be honest about that. I wish I could do more, but I'm still, you know, I'm still thinking about it in the background. And then on some occasions, and most of this happens during my vacation time, you know, I concentrate and then I work on, on musical projects nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> you find yourself during the time that you're not composing that you're conceptualizing and imagining what might be your next piece for example yes i think i think i do pretty often i also think that's you know it's a privilege to be able to spend these you know extended periods of time thinking not only what kind of music i want to write but also what is music for me and how what is my point of view, you know, in this, however, quite abundant world where a lot of people have their visions on, on a lot of subjects and music involved, right? So, yeah, sometimes I just think, you know, what is my take on sound experience in general in this world and how I can contribute to this? And then, you know, if, if narrowing down to some particular composition, 
to find myself, you know, in like random places, thinking about my next piece. Very, very into going to the... Well, here in San Francisco, where we are, I just love going to the ocean. And that's my ideal place to think about music. So what about the ocean? What inspires you there? What makes that a place of inspiration? I think it comes from the fact that back in Lithuania, the ultimate holiday destination would be the, you know, going to the seaside. And I just grew up thinking that, you know, when you go to the seaside, then the true happiness can come because that's the ultimate, I don't know, freedom, I guess. And now as, as here in San Francisco is so accessible, you know, just a short train ride to the ocean, to the big one, to the Pacific. For me, it was very spectacular when I first moved here. It was like, I don't, th- I don't think like visually it's any different from any other sea, but emotionally for me, the fact that it's so large and then, you know, it's basically Asia at the other side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely an expanse, isn't it? It is. Yeah. You know, when we think about the creative process and, you know, you talk a lot about balancing your life and finding a place in your mind to create. And there's always this notion for people that want to do something creative that they might have to survive in the world at the same time. And some people get the opportunity to compose full time and are able to make a living doing that. And for some of those people, they think that then it becomes work. So there may be some kind of degradation of quality in the type of creative output that they feel, that that it loses its purity in some way. And what I heard you say was that there was, you know, this process that you go through where you're imagining a vacation spot or a place where you really have relaxation and a really open space in your mind to do that. So if you did have the the choice to do music full time, do you think it would be even approachable for you? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's that's a that's a question. Um... And the reason I ask that is because having been so involved in the scientific community uh, and the way the mind needs to work and function in a scientific environment, you must get a lot of fulfillment out of that. And so if you removed that, it wouldn't be there. And the question is, would it be replaced or would it be fulfilled? Would that chasm be filled up? Yeah, I think at this point, for me, it would be too difficult to just leave science, I believe. And my impression is that, and I think that's how my head works, is like I really like structuring things in my mind, and that's what I do at work. And then I think that's the beauty of the creative process, is that you kind of, all of a sudden, you can let go all the rules of the physical world, of how this, you know, like when we work in biology, when we are in the lab, you're just bound to, you know, the physical world. It's, you know, it's this way and or, or the other. There is so many unknowns and that's fascinating. But the ground meaning is, uh, the ground truth is like still anchoring you. Well, in this creative process, which I think that's what really, in a way, liberating for me when I can, you know, take time and write music, is that all of a sudden, it's kind of completely liberating you can do whenever you want actually and i think that's echoing pretty much with you know in general in the creative process and we might you know maybe get back to this from another perspective but i always think about this fact when you know thinking about academic music or like this completely creative process that you are completely not limited by anything versus some you know more 
what we call approachable or popular music, something that, you know, we still want to play with the like genre boundaries or something like that. Lately, I do listen to a lot of popular music and I find, you know, fascinating how people actually operate within, you know, certain boundaries, however, you know, and find absolutely creative ways of doing, you know, incredible things. So when I write music, I was like, oh yeah, that's truly liberating for me at least. You know, I was thinking about Charles Ives and, you know, his lifestyle comes to mind that, you know, creating an insurance company and having to be in that type of world. And I was thinking, well, the creative process comes from life. And so in order to be stimulated by a process, there has to be stimulus. And so where do you get the stimulus? Certainly, it sounds wonderful to be at the ocean and to see the expanse and clean out your mind. But I think it's more interesting to be very involved in something else and have that be, you know, an entire environment that can generate a lot of energy and a lot of interesting complexity towards a creative output. I was reading a quotation about your music, that it's a music of a single state, being a chamber miniature or an opera, which spreads like an aroma and is slightly intoxicating. I really loved reading that. And I thought to ask you when you think of, and again, I don't want to pigeonhole this idea of, quote, serious music, or even, as you mentioned, academic music. But since we're talking about contemporary music, or we're using that terminology, how do you see or how do you define the music of our time? Because to me, that's what we're in. This is our time. And for what you do musically, the decisions that you make, how do you see that in terms of it being the music of our time? Yeah, that's such a topic. And for me, it's mostly I have to deal with these kind of questions when people ask, what kind of music do you write? And I say, well, it's contemporary music. But contemporary means music of our lives, right? And so all the music that is produced nowadays is contemporary in a way, right? And so how then is this then a definition at all? And so I think it goes back to what you mentioned about stimulus. 
I really do think that, at least in my creative process, and lately I've been interested more and more in like how music can interact with events and social events and society and in relations in between people. And I think I get the most stimulated by everything that has to do with these, you know, intrapersonal relations. I often get inspired by, you know, books or films that deal with these, uh, yeah, sometimes even simple things, but that, you know, can be at crucial moments in life. And sometimes also not as much as in like intrapersonal, but more like society-wise. And I think at the beginning of when I, you know, just started in music, I was very much into pure music, very much into this art doesn't represent anything. It just, you know, in your mind is a sequence of sounds. And then the more I go, the more I realize how powerful it is actually to situate any kind of art and music too. And, you know, just the pure, serious, as you say, instrumental music that doesn't have any program in it and still situate this in a, in a social context. And that's, I'm interested more and more recently. You know, I do think that the interpersonal seems to be a theme of stimulus for you. And as I listen to your music, there's also a corollary about having this multicultural lifestyle of having lived in a country that speaks your native tongue and then being in Paris and working there and studying there. And that's a different language. It's also a different mentality. And then in the United States, different language, different mentality. But language is the essence of what I'm getting at here. And since interpersonal issues seem to be the most stimulating for your process, it doesn't come too much of a surprise to me to discover while listening to your music, there are a lot of voices. And in fact, I would say 80% of the music that I listened to had voices in it in some way. And I know that even as early as 2009, you won the first prize at the Young Composers Competition of Choral Music. So you have a background and interest in voices. And I was wondering if you could find maybe how that happened. How, to, how did that start? And why did vocal music become such a, uh, an interest to you to find a way to integrate it into most of your work? Yeah, that, that's a really true point. I... I just love writing for voices. And I think that um, at, at some points, I just, you know, this is a very subjective, but I, I think I, I managed to to get out of the result, you know, really close to what was in my mind, you know. And this is something I think a lot, like technically as a composer, like how close you can get with our technique, which is, you know, like ever improving and ever evolving to what you had in your mind, right? And I'm still a very much a learner. Um, I consider that um, often I, I'm still away from what I had initially in mind. And with vocal music, I feel that that's the closest I can get. And it's, I believe it's difficult to express, verbalize what brought me there. But um, I think like the timbre has something just, I don't know, like directly connected to like emotional state of, of the performer. And I think that's, I was exploring a lot of, you know, like these extra when you have, you know, a pitch and then a, a technique, and then you can add to that, you know, all these additional sounds of the body that usually the performers, you know, tend to eliminate. And so bringing back the body to the, to the sound, it's, it's really, I think, it's very organic, very fluid with the voice. I've been trying to do this a lot with wind instruments, right? It's a bit easier to do because, you know, it's air coming from the body, it's a bit more approachable. But some other instruments, you know, say the piano, 
is is a bit more difficult to bring the body uh, into this instrument who is you know such a like a perfect tuned and just ready-made sound thing right and then i think the voice is just unique in this aspect Yeah, and there's so much variance and potential with every individual that you work with as well. So it just really opens up a, almost an unlimited palette. If you have a tuned piano and you have another tuned piano, those two pianos might not give you too much of a variance in terms of a process. But I think it's very meaningful that you connect this directness in an inner experience of an interpersonal say emotion or experience that you wish to express as directly as you possibly can and because we're speaking human beings that we're expressing ourselves with words and language that it almost makes perfect sense that it would be an attractor but in music school when you study music formally you studied in fact with uh, professor balakowskas and when you think about his work and you, a teacher can be a stimulus and an inspiration, but they're also trying to harness this technique or let's say mastery of form and design and even accelerating a musicianship of sorts, uh, working with notes. I was curious, as you work with a composer like Balakowskis, how do you find your own identity when you're so close to somebody that has a very, let's say, definable style? That was an experience. That was really something that was really formatting, I believe, for me. Um, so I, I, came, I came to study with him, you know, I was like 17 or something, really young, and I was completely in love with his music and uh, I think one of the first pieces I wrote in the Academy of Music I like direct inspiration from you know his style his you know he has this harmonic signature this very very visible and also even the rhythmical you know processes are very discernible in his work and I, and I was influenced by that and so it took me a while to I guess I, I just was processing his influence in the beginning and then you know eventually looking for something you know maybe more me but you know, talking with him was was always very instructive he has 
you know, when I think about that, he, he was such a avant-garde person, right? And in his in his approach to music and his, in, in his thinking, he's also at the same time such a classical musician. He would, I would try to talk uh, with him about spectral ideas or uh, how we could you know use extended techniques and these like really technical things and he would say melody is like gravitation you know you, you can try to forget about it but it's still there and so we would talk about melody harmony and rhythm during our classes and i i remember very vividly i once asked i said professor what's your what's your favorite composer of all times and i obviously you know like being a contemporary composer was expecting something, you know, like, you know, after 1960s. And he was like, well, obviously Bach. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that tells a lot about him. And yeah. So many people often go back to Bach <laughs> for that original inspiration. You know, you've also taken an interest in um, some organizing in your life around music. And I was thinking about something that this idea of building community around creative intention and you know on one hand you're you're doing research on genetic engineering and and so on but you're also organizing contemporary music festivals and working on projects that work around interdisciplinary issues and i was interested in this performance movement called music is very important can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. These are sweet young year memories from Academy of Music and just, you know, brings me to this exceptional group of friends that we formed uh, while studying there. So, yeah, I think this is very natural for every young composer. We were looking forward to, you know, hearing our own music. And it's, it's not always, you know, as straightforward. We would write a lot of music and then it would be, you know, a struggle. You're still a student. You want to hear this performed. And so in our group of friends, you know, I was playing the piano and then we had some other pianist friends and then other composer friends have come from the, you know, playing the violin or being singers too. And so we just realized that we had already the starting group of performers that we could write for ourselves. And then all of a sudden we would we could be controlling so much more than just, you know, writing the score, but doing the performance and then collaborating between between each other, we could create these, you know, organic entities of music performance that we could integrate with whatever we wanted, other art uh, forms and, and so on. And yeah, we were preparing a concert and then I think some of us was, was reading this book by Luigi Russolo. It was a one of his manifestos and then it was this phrase music is very important and that's just the beginning of a phrase and we were like this is key that's why we do it because we think music is so important and then our first performance was called music is very important but then when we did the second one we thought we have to make it you know a different title how we will make it a different one and so as it was a second we called it music is very very important and then the third was music is very 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 important and so on i think we went up to five and so those are great years weird memories great i really truly believe in that this is so important in the you know just realm of music how contemporary music is living in our world and um and then happened what often happens I went to study and then live and work 
and study again in France and when my friends went to other places, UK. And then this collective just remained virtual for a while and now I know that some of my friends who you know, remain fully full-time in the music, they absolutely continue to develop this idea of um, just a you know, holistic, I could say, vision to music uh, making and performance. In terms of truly exemplifying the, the the drama of life, at some point you turn to opera, and in fact, even though we talked a lot about voice and how the voice is important to you, it's not to say that you haven't exercised your instrumental capabilities. The piece that comes to mind is Sunrise of the West. This orchestral piece is a full expression of instruments and fully realized expression of the, that palette. So now you have you have drama, you have stage, you have a scenario. And a lot of composers sometimes are lured into writing for opera because they think that that's th something they just have to do. Some people feel that it might not be necessary for that individual, that it, it doesn't even make sense that they would even try to write an opera. But as it turns out, uh, you actually did it and you found a way to use stage in a different way. There was also a, uh, a reference to comic books, I believe, and it also opens up the door for accessibility. You see, audience accessibility is very, very important in order for people to open their minds to something unusual or different. And so I'm very interested in knowing if there was an intention or what was the intention or how does the intention work into, I don't want to say assisting the audience, but giving a little bit more connective force to, to the piece that you're writing. So tell us a little bit about how you came into thinking about the idea of comics and the idea of presenting it in this way. Yeah. Once again, it's just the story of me being, you know, in the, the world of, let's say, chamber operas is, you know, completely group of friend related and connection driven. And it's, it's really interesting. And this, you know, it's actually started as this, you know, movement called New Opera Action, uh, in a way. And, you know, it's been years, like more than 10 years, it's been happening. A lot of different operas have been, or chamber operas, or like operas or quasi-operas, as you wish, 
have been done. And then even, you know, music scientists, uh, scholars, they were, you know, started to discuss how the genre is changing. And I believe one of the main concepts that, that come to my mind when thinking about that is that, you know, the word opera might be somewhat intimidating, right? Because it's such a... You rarely think of opera associated with something minuscule. It's rather massive, you know. At least for me, opera rhymes with, you know, opera theater, this huge scene, you know, let alone, you know, an orchestra and a full choir and then so many, you know, big budget things, soloists and everything. And so I believe what we managed to do is to kind of naively start from completely, like, Know, ground zero and then build up like small-scale operations and you know, around the genre and it was extremely exciting to work on these uh, so I've collaborated on, on, on several occasions with this a new opera action and so you know like the producer basically behind this was a driven force Anna Blamonova and uh, I don't know I it was pretty straightforward you know in like approaching this genre that you know other otherwise would be you know like you have in mind Puccini and then you don't want to write an opera because you know that why would you <laughs> right um and uh on the other side you know I was completely both surprised and enchanted to get the comic strip into the opera or chamber opera and this happened over this collaboration with director stage designer and multimedia artist. Uh, she goes under Gora Paris's name and uh, it was completely, you know, something she brought to the picture and she said, well, I have this very clear idea what I want to do. Would you let me to? And uh, I told her I was surprised. I didn't expect that at all. And then it turns out it worked really nicely. It was, yeah, such a, that collaboration between, um, you know, my music and then this improbable, completely improbable scenery and vision. I think it worked really nicely. notion and we spoke about this privately having to do with b 
being in the ivory tower, being the introvert, you know, creating. And here you have a completely new inspiration, which only came from collaboration. So once again, it's back to the interpersonal and it's back to how that stimulates activity in your mind and moves things forward. When we talk about technology, because I suppose you could say that a stage setup or a stage design concept is utilizing some type of technology, but I wanted to ask you about technology in, in other pieces and if you use technology as a way of deepening your understanding of, of music and a process you might be working through. Yeah, and so you mentioned this piece of mine I was working on a couple of years ago, uh, Sunrise of the West, that I very much was walking on the ocean beach thinking about this music, very, very water-inspired. And the approach that they had is, once again, going back to the voice and the meaning of voice in what I want to do, basically, in music. And there is a collaborator that is very dear to me. She's a singer. Her name is Agle Sirvidite, and I've collaborated with her numerous already occasions and the idea for example of that piece was I said can I write you a song and so you'll sing it to me and she said yes and then I said and then I'll use it to analyze with this um, software that's developed in the IRCAM Institute in Paris who basically analyzes the timbre the spectra of a sound then using a library of a very large library of pre-designed sound samples kind of can fit you back the most probable combination of these sounds in the library to give you the result that you're putting in. And so my idea was like, well, can I use this software and in a way orchestrate her voice in a most you know faithful way? And that, that was a, such an interesting experience because well, technologies are not all the time perfect. And, you know, it definitely didn't work in the way as, as you know, one, me including, might have thought that, you know, you're going to put a recording of a, of, of a song and it will just orchestrate you something, you know, completely spectacular. However, I really enjoyed this experience while looking for uh, you know, completely sound combinations, orchestral sound, instrumental sound combinations that did not come from the, you know, predefined ways how we are taught to write for an orchestra, like which timbre goes with which one and how do you do this and these completely seemingly random combinations were really revealing for me so yeah Stengusu, you're a good 
I was wanting to sort of bring this full circle to accessibility again. And I do think that even though we might be living in a academically based experimental medium of trying to be without constraints, to have an openness about sound itself rather than formalistically being limited to a certain thing or a certain genre or a certain set of techniques, that, that it does really come down to this idea of um, self-expression and connecting to an audience that is hearing something that they've never heard before and then they feel that there's something there. So this brings me to a very important question, which is when you compose and you're in that creative process, is the energy driving by what you wish to put out to the audience? Because I believe that it may be the reaction that people get when they hear the music is an important element. And how people react to sound may be just as important as, you know, it's kind of like having a belief in something, like let's say it's a spiritual belief, but you're always generally among other people when you're investigating such an ideal. And so you may get a lot of energy from the individuals that are reacting to that belief system, which may stimulate you more than the belief system itself. So I guess the question has to do with, with feedback or you know, how the audience is responding. And are, is your intention, and the central question is intention, is the intention moving outward to them? Is it maybe hoping that it's coming from them in terms of how they receive it? What do you think? Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. I think, you know, this makes me think about, you know, the famous question, like, who cares if you listen, right? Well, I, I obviously deeply care. and uh, But I'm thinking about the feedback part that you mentioned. And I was like, how, how do I get this feedback? Well, you know, it's not as straightforward. Imagine you are in, a, in this classical setting in, in a concert hall and then your music is played. How, how do you get that feedback? 
you know, very few people will come after the concert to tell you anything, if not like, oh, nice to see you, you know. And um, so I wouldn't say I was, you know, overtly dependent on the feedback, although I, I do clearly care for those who listen. And I think, I don't know if this sounds ego-driven or what, but I do perceive myself as a very listener of, of my music. And so, you know, if it doesn't make it for me, you know, but probably this has to do with the fact that I'm, I'm pretty, like, have the structural thinking of when I write music. I do things in a way that I have to make up a system that makes sense to me, and that if it does for me, then hopefully it will make for others. And so I try making these, you know, structures on music that I'm writing, and then sometimes it doesn't work, you know. The structure is beautiful, but it doesn't work, and I would absolutely redo the structure then if it doesn't work on me. So you, in fact, become the first true audience member. In other words, you're trying to perceive your experience of listening to your own music as if you were an audience member. Because that's very different than the analytic approach of writing it and just checking it. But to actually feel if you're checking in on that overall experience. So. Some people call it an aesthetic, but when people quote your atmospheric quality, and they say things like intoxicating aroma. They're talking about atmosphere. They're talking about willingness to step into an atmosphere and then while in it, feeling very uh, touched by it or feeling comfortable with it or feeling more interested in it because it's taking them into an unfamiliar place or maybe even a place of longing that they wish to be in, that they're not in. And I love that versus just, you know, challenge me because it's different or throw me a bunch of chaos so because it's new and interesting, but rather try to put me into a different state of mind. Put me on the edge of comfort even. Take me to a place of personal challenge and then I can experience myself, you see. So this is what I think I'm hearing from you, is that you have a, uh, an interest in finding 
a way of using structures and techniques to create an atmosphere rather than a hypnotic riff, um, which is, I think, true of repetitive music. People want, well, we can talk about minimalism because this is something that's important to you. It's actually something you've studied quite thoroughly, I would say. So like, how do you see, in fact, I was thinking about Steve Reich, It's Gonna Rain. And I thought when I heard that the first time, it was really groundbreaking for me in a lot of ways. But I haven't listened to it probably more than a couple of times all the way through from beginning to end. But that wasn't the point. It wasn't that I could listen to it over and over like a Steely Dan song or a song that I really enjoy listening to over and over and over again. But it was the transformative aspect of what he did that made me think about things differently. You know, so tell us about your work on minimalistic analysis and what's that about? Yeah, this is truly a turning point in my vision of music. I first discovered like a short excerpt of music for 18 musicians by Steve Reich when I was in high school. And just, I think it was in like, like a one minute excerpt of a fairly long piece, right? which was just mesmerizing, and I wanted to go back and back. And then, you know, back in the day, this was like early 2000s, uh, you know, music, let's say a bit of a niche music, even though, you know, Steve Reich had, you know, gotten a cult following, you know, since, but um, it wasn't as accessible. Like, it wasn't it wasn't as you could type in YouTube and just get it right away. So I believe, I remember I was, I was looking for this. I was very much into you know, getting um, a score of that piece. When I moved to France, one of the first things I did, I went to the library of Paris Conservatoire and just got that score to look at. And and I was deeply moved by, you know, first by the music itself, the, you know, American minimalism from the 70s, and then the idea that it was bringing behind. And that def- definitely was a, like a turning point for her. And absolutely from there that my interest in music philosophy like music history and the, the way of like telling how things worked out for music outside of music, this interest became really big. And so, you know, we had to write like a research project, you know, at the end of the my MA degree. And so, yes, I focused on how people do address, you know, the analytical problems in minimal music where, you know, like there are three bars with five notes. And what's to say about that? And turns out there is so much to say. And when you put this back into cultural context, and oh, I, so I discovered so many things. And one of my dreams was to come study musicology at UCLA with Robert Fink, who wrote this, you know, like groundbreaking book on, on minimal music. And uh, yeah, so that, that was so exciting for me. And I think that was the key point when I first, I was reading Robert Fink, and I was, this just came to mind. He was talking about these, you know, recombinant, using the word recombinant, recombinant, I think, desires, recombinant teleology. And, uh, you know, I was very much working in, you know, the gene engineering lab at that time, and we were doing recombinant protein expression. We did, like, I was doing this every day at my, my lab work, and I was, I was like, yes, this, I have, a, like, an entrance to this field now through these two backgrounds. I can finally use what I think I know about you know, gene engineering and how this can be used in, you know, appreciating why, why minimal music is having such an effect on us. And so I really, you know, got into that rabbit hole. And ever since, the minimal music, and specifically this, this, you know, American minimal music from the 70s, you know, like the, the beginning of this, meant so much to me. At oftentimes, I just saw this as such a pure form of music, of, of sound as an art, of, you know, sonoric experience. And, 
yeah, I definitely had difficulties, you know, wrapping my head around that because I was so fascinated by this, by this music, yet I was not writing that much, you know, like minimal music. Maybe recently I, I kind of allowed myself into these repetitive, specifically rhythmic repetitive structures. But uh, a lot of my work has been, you know, as you, as you suggested, like more of like atmospheric um, music of, of a state, of a kind of a, yeah, being. But definitely this this all... I think rooted in when I discovered, you know, what music for eighteen musicians was, and you know, I was I was listening to that on repeat, and like a lot of other, even like the the most earliest pieces by Steve Reich, you know, when when he just experimented with the phase uh, uh, contrast, such as uh, you know, piano phase and violin phase, I was having this in my uh, back back in the day it was like Walkman, <laughs> you know, every night I would fall asleep with that music, yeah. I just lastly, I wanted to uh, ask you, you know, tell us what you're what you're thinking about now. What are you working on? Uh, what, what's the next thing for the music of Novitskas? I think, you know, basically going forward with some of the you know themes that we already touched. I, I just recently got contacted by, you know, for a project involving writing music for solo voice. You know, and I immediately said, yes, this resonates so much. This is for a performer who has a, such a strong history in performing, you know, like seminal um, new music pieces for for voice, such as you know Berio sequences and and likewise. And so yeah, this is something I'm I'm currently working on. I'm completely looking forward to collaborating, you know, and just expanding the my technical boundaries with you know working with voice. And on the other hand, has been I've been approached. Uh, for this, you know, interdisciplinary project, writing for 
instruments, but that, you know, not in a concert, classical concert setting, but in a, a performance setting that involves dancers and stage design. So we're developing this now, an idea for two musicians, two dancers. I've been lucky enough to also participate in the, like the very, from the very beginning of the, of the project, you know, we were basically developing the story, what we want to write this about, what's, you know, what point of view, you know, we can contribute to that would be meaningful. And we're discussing a lot about the meaning of time and the way we perceive it and just was completely new meaning for this in the context of global pandemics when, you know, everyone was just know, tripping on uh, difficulties of dealing with, you know, this time when you suddenly had so so many, so much of that. So, yeah, those are the, I think, just echoing on what I've enjoyed a lot during my, you know, past music uh, experiences is, yeah, working for voice and working for interdisciplinary projects. Well, I, I look very much forward to hearing that when it happens. And I very much enjoyed meeting you and working with you today and hearing your story. So thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Thank you, Drew. Composers on Air is supported by the Lithuanian Council for Culture and the Ministry of Culture of the Republic of Lithuania.